Amen. Well, after that song, let's do the Gospels. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 7 this evening. God's gentle overruling. Uh, we have to review very quickly, hopefully, the last two chapters. In chapter 5, it was David's desire after conquering Jabus and making it Jerusalem to bring the Ark of the Covenant there. And as they started, Uzzah, he had a good intention of steadying the ark as it, the oxen stumbled with it on a cart where it did not belong. And it ended in catastrophe, and Uzzah died, breaking a clear commandment of God in front of the entire nation, and it was dealt with. David, um, his good intention in this chapter is going to be refused, but... He's going to be blessed in an enormous way. And we'll, of course, open that up shortly. But in chapter 6, he brings the ark to Jerusalem, David does, and he dances before it with all of his might. And that's significant, the whole story of him wanting to conquer Jerusalem, then doing it, wanting to bring the ark there, suffering this catastrophe and the death of one of his men, his, his one of the people of his nation, his subjects. And then the ark staying at, at uh, someone else's house, whose name just escaped me just as soon as it came up, uh, Obed-Edom. And uh, he was being blessed, and David brings the ark, and finally brings it with all his dancing. And his wife, Michelle, comes out, and she has just as much energy coming against what was going on. My point is... There's an afterglow taking place in the heart of David. It's not over. Just because the ark has been successfully brought there, he's just still on this spiritual um, mountain. And in this chapter, we have his good intention and God's prohibition and God's intentions and the covenant with David and this great gratitude with very much awe. Let's look at verse 1. 2 Samuel 7, now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies all around. And we stop there, mid-clause. No imminent threats at this point. He's in his palace. He had traveled this long and rugged road to find this rest. That road was filled with fear and tears and battles and wrongs and but when we get to chapter 8, he's going to be the aggressor and he's going to go after the Philistines and win those wars too. But at this point, no imminent threats. In verse 2 now, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Faithful Nathan the prophet is now introduced. We've already met one of David's children named Nathan, which I like to think that David named him after this prophet. There's no evidence for that. It's just what I like to do. Uh, but there's no evidence against it either. But here, Nathan, this very faithful man, he will remain faithful through the reign of Solomon as long as he, Nathan is around. And he is a big part of this giant covenant that God is about to make with David. He later contributes to the worship, the music worship at the temple. 
he, David, and the prophet Gad. That comes out in Second Chronicles 29. And it, um, Hezekiah, the king, hundreds of years later, he reestablishes his worship based on what these three men did. It was a tradition worth saving. Some traditions are just in the way. Others are just, man, that's pretty good. They were right on with this one. And uh, Nathan was a part of that. Of course, he's the one that rebukes David. He takes his life in his own hands. He takes the friendship in his own hands. Uh, and, and, of course, he, he confronts David, and David submits. He will be very much a part of Solomon securing the throne when Solomon's older brother tries to usurp the will of King David. Uh, Nathan will be very much involved in bringing about that victory for Solomon. He chronicles the reigns of David and Solomon. We read about that in First and Second Chronicles. And he is just a faithful to Yahweh's standards and will uh, whenever we come in touch with him. And so now we meet him. Then the king said to Nathan the prophet. And uh, the prophet is the one who spoke for God, advising David in religious or spiritual matters, we would say. Um, I think there was more to these two men than just prophet and king. I think they were friends. And it, it is in the language, I think, if you in the, at least it translated into the English. Then the king said to Nathan the prophet, See how I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And just the, the, the ease that Nathan answers David is evident that he knew who David was. He knew his heart for God. He's been writing psalms since he was in the wilderness, uh, running from Saul. He knows this man loves God, and he doesn't hesitate to say, Man, David, what a great idea. And so, again, verse 2, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Um, so, again, more than co-servants, they were good friends. And uh, what's happening is David is in his palace, and he's disturbed by this discrepancy. Looking out of his palace, and he sees the tent, and it's like, man, it's something. Because he's still, you know, excited about bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And then it's this, wait a minute, this doesn't fit. It's like, you know, apples, oranges, key. It just It's not a fruit. It doesn't belong. Something's not right. Always mindful of the things of God. His heart ached for something better, for the representation of the presence of God, which the ark was. And it was not only a representation of the presence, it spoke of what, how God thought about sinners. And that's why it's called the mercy seat. If you're not a sinner, you don't need mercy. We love mercy. We need it. The Lord Jesus never needed mercy. He was perfect in every way. So this ark of the covenant, so... Uh, Sensitive David was to this. Uh, he wanted more for it. Six centuries later, God will address this very discrepancy with the repatriates, those Jews who were taken captive to Babylon and they were allowed to come back under Zerubbabel. They began to build the temple and then there was protests by the uh, what we would call nowadays the Arabs in the land and the work stopped. And there they laid the foundation, and that's all they laid. And for 15, over 15 years, or 16 years, uh, that's all they had was this foundation. And God raised up Haggai the prophet, and 
Zechariah and sent them to the people to say, what is going on with you? Uh, They lived, the people, in paneled houses. In other words, their houses were finished. People would come over to their houses. I love what you've done with the place. But then you'd go to the church, to the house of God, and there was just a slab overgrown with weeds. And so Haggai the prophet, he addresses this in the first chapter. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple lie in ruins? Man, what a shot between the eyes. So you're living high up on the hog, but look at God's house. It's in ruins. Unlike King David, they had a low opinion of essential things, spiritually essential things. Now, some of them may not have it just, you know, got swept up and everybody was doing it and then others were just, you know, carnal. But in that same first chapter, Haggai says to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, you better think about this. Uh, were they living as though they regretted knowing God? Think about that. How many Christians live as though they regret that they know the Lord? I've got to be righteous now. I can't do that now. And so we consider our ways. You know, a Christian may dedicate something in their lives to God. Someday they resolve to do this or do that. But they don't act on it. David did. David resolved to do something for the Lord, and he went out to do it. Um, That's a good warning for us to follow through on what we know we are supposed to do, because when we voiced that resolve, we knew it was right. Now, maybe sometimes we do get it wrong. We're very passionate and emotional. I'm going to do this, and you find out, well, that's actually not right. Uh, You shouldn't do it that way. Uh, that then you have to walk that back. But if it is right, then we must own up to it. Verse 3, Then Nathan said, to, Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Well, he had no reason not to say that. Seemed like a good idea at the time. And it was a very good idea. Just not the way God wanted it. The details had to be worked out. <clears throat> it was a good idea. It just wasn't all of God's idea. Now, God knew this was coming. This is never surprised. And Nathan made the mistake that we all tend to make from time to time is we don't acknowledge the Lord. We lean on our own. We put our weight on our own understanding rather than God's. And, of course, we all do it again from time to time. If some things seem obvious, the problem comes in is when someone is pressuring you, another Christian is pressuring you to not lean on your own, uh, to, to lean on your own and say, what could be wrong with this? Well, i got to talk with the Lord. Why are you going to do that? That's when everybody's going to do kung fu fighting. Those fists would be fast as lighting, lightning. Uh, we can't, you just have to, you know, risk the friendship. Look, i got to wait. I'm sorry. I know it's passionate to you. I just asked you for change for a dollar. i got to. Pray, but I know that that would be, of course, abuse. That would be abusing it, unless you've got some leading. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, I hope. If not, see Pastor David. He'll straighten it out for you. <laughs> David sought God through Nathan, but Nathan felt the matter righteous enough to just go forward. Sort of a religious, a righteous rubber stamping. And we don't fault Nathan for this, not one bit. Why not? 
It's fun to fault others. Because God doesn't fault him. That's why. God never raises his voice throughout this exchange. He is so gentle, overruling Nathan and overruling David. And not only does he exercise mercy, but there's this tremendous amount of grace. And again, mercy is withholding punishment that you deserve. Grace is rewarding you when you don't deserve it. And this is why we love those two so much. Verse 4, but it happened that night that the word of Yahweh came to Nathan saying, now again we stop here. You can't go through these scriptures very quickly. I mean, some can in their age, but I feel no leading to do that. Uh, Pastor Chuck and Vernon McGee, you know, they could teach through the Bible seven or eight times in their lifetime. I could do that if I lived to be 300. <laughs> what? Uh, but I'm at, I belong to a different age. And Christians are, across the board, more plugged into Christianity than when those men came along. They really laid the foundation for other pastors to come and give a little bit more in-depth approach to things. So um, the bottom line is each pastor has to feel led. But a congregation, if they're hungry for God's word, they, what do they care if it, if it takes all night? <laughs> I could have preached all night. Uh, anyway... <laughs> When it says, but it happened that night. This is terrible. You preach a sermon and God comes and corrects you <laughs> after you've preached it. And you say, well, today that's recorded and put on the Internet. Well, Nathan's was recorded and put in the Bible. We all read about this faux pas. But this is what it means. Luke 22, verse 42. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Well, this is that part, nevertheless. Not what I want, not what I preached, but what you say. And we're seeing it acted out, acted out here. God is not looking for religious activists. A lot of Christians think that's what he's looking for. He's looking for Christ-likeness. It's not always that easy to discover it. It takes everything we've got. To, and to keep it there. There's no automatic pilot on Christianity. Uh, you younger Christians, you've got to learn. Uh, you know, you're not owed an easy path to Christianity. When the Bible characters come out and say, From my youth I have followed the word of God. In the face of the devil's temptations, you're expected to face those temptations too. And uh, if you don't, well, the consequences can be uh, quite displeasing for you and others, too. So there can be a great difference between good intentions and God's intentions. And uh, seeking to get those balanced is quite consuming, and, and, and why not? He says, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying... Now, we'll get to this in verse 17, but First Chronicles also records this. According to all these words, and according to all this... Vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So when the word comes to Nathan, he gets a vision. And the difference between a vision and a dream is the dream, you're sleeping. In the vision, you're awake. But you're seeing something that's like a dream. But it's a revelation from God. And, uh, of course, Satan has his corrupted visions also. Uh, but this is how... Nathan receives this correction. So he goes home. Isaiah did the same thing. You know, Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, you're going to die, king. 
Hezekiah, you know, and then he gets out to the courtyard and God goes, you know, he's praying, his heart is broken. Go back and tell him, I'm going to reverse this judgment. And, and Isaiah does. There, Isaiah really wasn't wrong. Here, Hezekiah was wrong. I mean, Nathan. But uh, again, and Nathan doesn't, he doesn't sweep it under the rug. As though he was right all along. He, he is admitting that he spoke without seeking the Lord. Uh, but God g- gently correcting Nathan's word to David. Go, verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house? For, would you build a house for me to dwell in? This is God referring to David as his servant. And I would hope that God would refer to all of us as his servant. This is my servant, Rick. He's more handsome than most. But (laughs) if you're having a vision, (laughs) otherwise, anyway, would you build a house for me to dwell in? This is a sweet tone. This 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 tone of endearment is as apparent would say to a small child, when that child promises something beyond their ability to deliver, when I get my allowance, I'm going to buy you a new car, Dad. And it's like, yeah, right, but you don't do that. You, you just, oh, that's so nice. What color car did you have in mind? <laughs> but this is what's happening here. Would you, would you build me a house, David? The historian is implying that God is graciously overruling Nathan. And he doesn't come out and say that, explicitly say here, that God said no. The historian is in here in Samuel is not. But in Chronicles, the parallel account, First Chronicles 17, verse 4, Go tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. It's just very clear and to the point. So there in Chronicles, we have the rest of the story. The hardest word in the English language to hear is no. (laughs) When you want something, you ask it from the time you're a child, you know, no. Some parents won't correct their kids and everybody else has got to suffer. Uh, We have to learn how to live with it. It's it's not easy. It's necessary. I thought by now I'd outgrow it. (laughs) That hasn't happened. Uh, Doesn't a red light say no? You cannot cross It's the ugly troll at the intersection. That's what the red lights are. Anyway, because green lights are your friend. All right. All of you are saints when you drive. You just, no, you don't have any problems, just me. Uh, Anyway, uh, where where were we? I got it. It, uh, again, not an abrupt no from God. He's very sensitive to the feelings of both these men. Well, how many lessons are built into this for us to be this way with others? We talk about, I want to be like Christ. Well, there's a picture. How, how God is handling something that they were, or how he's overruling something. As far as David building a house for God, God is not disapproving the idea and saying, I don't want a house. He is going to say, I'll take the house, but you won't be the builder. David will then say, but I will be the financier. I will be the bank, and I will be the architect. And unless God says no, that's what I'm going to do. And that's exactly what he he does. So Yahweh is taking his time explaining his reasons to Nathan 
to go tell David with much care, much love, and many, about 10 promises will be built into this. Not all of them are, some of them are admitted here. For example, in 1 Chronicles 22, which we don't get here in 2 Samuel 7, David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of Yahweh my God. But the word of Yahweh came to me. And he doesn't say by Nathan, but that's how it came. Nor does he say Nathan got it wrong. <laughs> Saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. So God is saying to David, I I don't want such a warrior associated with my house. David, I understand these things. I blessed you through those battles. But man is created in the image of God, and it is not God's first intention that man should kill each other. It is what has come out of the curse, and everything that we have to trek through is God saying, I will have free will love. I will have it, no matter what the cost, and it is doable. And then we say in times, well, what about this, and what about that? And God says, what about it? You're going to love me anyway. If I don't answer your questions, I find God doesn't answer a lot of my questions in prayer. In fact, most of them are not answered. When I come to the study of the word, I get to places, I don't understand this. None of the commentators are really doing it for me. God speaks to me. But other things out there, like, I I don't get the answers. How come, God? That's the arrangement. I uh, submit to to it, and so do you, I hope. So in this sense, because of the violence, God distanced himself from David. There's a sermon built into it. He also says in 1 Chronicles 28, David again speaking, But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. This is the Old Testament now. In the New Testament, it changes, because Paul the Apostle built many houses for the Lord, and Paul the Apostle was responsible also. Uh, for the death of Stephen, at least in his heart. Verse 6, For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Uh, Temporary dwelling places, I'm sure the original one was just worn out and beat up all the things that went on in Israel from the times of Judges to the Philistine attack. Shiloh was probably, you know, ransacked. The ark at one point was lost to the Philistines. So God says, well, wherever the ark was, whatever tent you put up for me, I was content with that. I made no protests. David, it was you. It was you. They got so excited about the ark that you wanted to do more. And again, God is not telling him, no, I don't want that. He is just saying, Uh, I was comfortable as it was. I'm going to bless this, and I'm going to bless you, just not the way you think it's coming. Actually, David gets a far greater blessing from God than being approved with this (laughs) site plan. Uh, It's a far greater blessing, because he could have just, sure, build me the house, but he doesn't do that, as I've already said several times. And so, tents, of course, a very big thing in Scripture. You could preach a whole sermon on just tents. Um, some of them are past tense. <laughs> some of them are present tense. Anyway, 
the, of course, a tent, the tabernacle. They're portable dwelling places. You can pack them up and move on. And they were in the midst of people, the people this way. Where the people could go, the tent could go. And that's why later God will say the people will face Jerusalem and pray because the tent's no longer mobile. Abraham, as with Yahweh, was content to dwell in a tent, uh, a mobile dwelling. And yet, what did Abraham take with him wherever his tent went? The altar would be built. <laughs> and then he'd leave the altar behind, pack up his tent, and go to the next place and do it all over again. Leaving a witness wherever he went so that this, to this day, as you read through Genesis, even if you're reading casually, which I don't know how to read casually through the Bible. I can read War and Peace in an hour, but I can't get past a chapter in the Bible. Really, I can't, but it seems that way. Just, boy, this is easy. Look at that. But if you come to the Bible, oh, boy, i got to write this down. I wonder what that means. Where's that located? And you just, you can't read. But if you read Genesis... Uh, you get to Abraham, you keep saying, boy, he's making another altar. And he's leaving it behind. And the pagans did not understand that because they worshipped their altars and they felt they should be kept. Anyway, verse 7, wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Saying, why have you not built a house of cedar? Built me a house of cedar. Again, Nathan's getting this. He still hasn't gone to David. Nathan is getting the message to take to David. And it's remarkable that he can remember all of this and even get it into writing. Um, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Those are the words of Solomon when the temple finally went up. Solomon knew this this is just a representation. God is present. He is not, it's not pantheism. He's not, you know, in this wood, but he's here in the room. And whatever happens to this wood, he'll know about it. If he can number the hairs on your head, which I pride myself in making it easier for him. Some of you are abusive in this area. Uh, and just want to remind you of that. Your smug hairdos. Uh, <laughs> uh, but God sees everything, of course. And if he can number the hair, and that's important. Sometimes you lose sight of that. Does God even care? Is he even, I mean, is he big enough? If he's not answering my prayers, is he... Sovereign enough to deal. And God said, look, I know the hairs on your head. You're more valuable to me than, than sheep. Uh, don't worry about this. You just trust me by faith. Uh, what did he tell the church at Smyrna? They're going to throw you in jail. They're going to kill some of you. But hold true. That's what, how he comforts them. And I, it seems like they said, hmm, okay. I personally believe the gift of martyrdom is a gift. And I believe that when it comes time to die for Christ, he gives that Modern, everything they need to die the right way. Now, they're not obligated. They can opt out or they can embrace it. And uh, we, we've seen this through history. Anyway, shepherd here in verse 7, of course, metaphor for uh, the leaders. They were to be like shepherd with sheep, uh, have the shepherd's heart, Verse which in Jeremiah's age was absent in leadership. Jeremiah had it. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep 
to be ruler over my people, over Israel. So no one could claim, I made David great. Uh, just like with Abraham, God made David what David was, and that's going to factor into what he blesses him with. Verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Reputation. God is always with his people. We know this. Just Matthew 10. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Look at that. That's why that was in my head. I had it in the, there to, to quote. And, okay, you're not impressed with that. And I, I'm a little bothered that I forgot it was there. So God took years to cut off these enemies. And there were more enemies to face. The Philistines and Saul turned out to be the easier enemies in his life. They were external enemies. It was that internal enemy that really caused David the problems in life and brought forth more enemies, external ones. And, of course, I'm talking about his sin with Bathsheba and then his pride afterward that uh, got everybody into trouble. But soon, uh, David would make, as I mentioned, new enemies, and uh, the the saga would continue. His His reputation was legendary since the day he killed Goliath. But what I find remarkable is he continued to expand the legend. And not by, you know, know, stolen honor or anything like that. He actually had many exploits. So it wasn't that God blessed him this one day, he did this great thing, and then that's the end of the story. One hit wonder. From his battlefield conquest, his courageous acts of mercy... Well, where was David so merciful? Well, one was, well, of course, with, twice with Saul in the cave. One with Nabal when Abigail just, you know, a word in season and just told David, think about this. And he responds to that, which is quite impressive because he, had, he was ready to kill. This is a man who had already known how to kill. Uh, and then, of course, he united the kingdom. And he did it in a very uh, blameless and honorable manner. So, yeah, his, he, he was a legend, even to the Philistines. They're singing songs about you. Um, he's a legend until he, he dies. And when I always thought the temple should be called David's temple, not Solomon's. Because <laughs> what did really Solomon do? Uh, David really did all the <laughs> heavy lifting. Verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel... And will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Well, there are going to be uh, uh, about ten promises as mentioned. Not all of them will go with I will, but there's several of those in the English. Different Hebrew words, but it's the same point. God is saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. All for you, David. All because this man was so taken by the presence of God. It is, uh, in fact, this chapter is so profound in the Bible that Ethan, a great sage in Israel, a man of profound wisdom and a psalmist, He writes a psalm just about this covenant. Psalm 89 is all about this covenant. I have some of it here. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 3. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. And and he he just continues to 
that say, Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. So so the scope of this blessing that's coming David's way, imagine if God said to you something like this, or even something like this to someone in your family. And so because of these honors bestowed on David, uh, which are unique in history, Ethan later recognizes it for what it is and writes a song about it. And it's a long song, too. I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know, 60 verses. It's 52 verses, so he got a little carried away. But that's a, if he could recognize this, then we should. And it's not easy because we come from a different culture. We pick up 2 Samuel 7 and we read about all this and we say, okay, I get the theology. But do we really get the spirit of it all, of all that went into this? That God could not just find anybody to do this with. He could not say to Saul, I'll do this to you. He could not say to Jonathan. It took someone like David for God to do this. And God says, I know, I see David's faults. I have to ta- I'll take those too. I think largely when we get to heaven, um, the highlights will remain, the good ones. The bad ones will be washed away in Christ. But the highlights, you know, hey, you did this right, and you did that right. And, uh, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Yeah, but what about all the other creepy things he did driving to get to the place where he did these nice things? Oh, that, that's an autobiography, is it not? <laughs> it's okay for me to cut people off on the road on the way to church. As long as when I get to church, I serve. <laughs> that would be, that's upside down. But uh, <clears throat> you get it. More interesting things about this 10th verse is that God says that uh, you'll move no more. But the Jews have moved several times. And, uh, of course, we've talked about it. They don't have a temple right now. They're back in the land. God has put them back. They have no place to dwell in peace, as it's promised here. There will be, uh, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. So this verse is, is not fulfilled in its entirety. It's had fragments fulfilled, but it is not fulfilled. Israel has no peace. You know, when the Jews, you go to Israel and you go to a tourist site, and you'll see a busload of Jewish children there too. And the chaperones, who are parents of the children, just like we go on a school trip to the you know, Smithsonian or something like that, your parents can go too, and they chaperone the kids. Well, there the, the parents are carrying pistols <laughs> because there's no peace. They used to carry rifles, and they should still carry rifles, because a pistol can't beat a rifle as a rule. Anyway, there's no peace there in Israel uh, to this very day. They have no dwelling, no ark, no altar, no lampstand, no prophets, no priest, no Levites, and no tribes. Hosea chapter 3 Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. They're going to be broken down and things won't remain the way they are. The visible struggle between the things given to them by God versus the idolatry that tries to creep in. They'll still be there, but they won't be visible like they were in the days of the prophets when the temple existed. And so, um, Lord, why are you bringing up, you, you know, this move no more? Do you intend to move us again? And yeah, there will be several of them. 
So this verse remains to be fulfilled in its entirety. Verse 7, uh, pardon me, verse 11. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also Yahweh tells you that he will make you a house. This is a counter blessing. God, I'm going to bless God and God overrules and blesses David. Uh, it's not called a covenant here. Later in 2 Samuel 23, it is referred to as a covenant. And it's just a love covenant, really. Because God is not really getting anything from this. He's already got David. David's descendants will not be like David. Most of them will be just monsters and fools. Uh, you know, Christianity is not automatic. Just because your parents love the Lord is no guarantee you're going to love the Lord. Do you have guts enough to take your faith? Or are you just going to let the devil just, you know, stroke your flesh and then you'll be happy? We will find out, but you have no reason to fail because God will be with you if you want him to be. And he is invincible. Uh, he will make you a house. That is a dynasty, a lasting kingdom. David, your name's not going to fade. When people bring up Saul, they're going to think something that is really not good. Why Jews name their children after Saul? Well, he's our first king. Yeah, but what kind of man was he? I mean, what if Jezebel was your first queen? Would you name your kids Jezebel? So, anyway, uh, David is going to have a dynasty, and God will oversee it. And the highlights will remain. And all those things that were wicked highlights will be burned away. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This was big with the Jews since the days of, of Abraham. Abraham did not get, you know, technically Abraham wasn't a Jew. I, I like to say that. <laughs> he really he was a Hebrew, but he wasn't, a, and the details, he wasn't connected to Jacob. But anyway. It is something to think about if somebody gets obnoxious with it. The uh, blessings of what's going to happen to my children and my name. It was big with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it, was, it became big with David. Moses really didn't get caught up and he only had two sons as far as we know. It wasn't something that was... Moses was so into doing what God told him with the nation that that's, that's what shine, you know, is his highlight. Uh, David has this dynasty, a twofold prophecy here in verse 12. Uh, first, Solomon will build the physical temple. Second, one greater than Solomon will carry on the worship of God to humanity. Listen, there's something big about the word Messiah, and there's something bigger about Christ. Messiah kind of locks it into the deliverer of the Jews who will also bring light to the Gentiles. Christ says it's happened. He is not only the deliverer of the Jews, he's now deliverer of the Gentiles too. So in that sense, it is an expansion of the prophecy. And uh, of course, the same meaning of the word. Uh, but if you were a Jew and you saw that, would you have the nerve to say he is the Christ? In other words, he's gone beyond Israel. He's not just Israel's deliverer. And most of the Christian Jews you meet, you know, they take great pride in uh, the Messianic Jews. Well, really, you're just, you're just a Christian. Uh, let's not muddy the waters, but 
Uh, you ain't going to change the world on that one. Uh, <laughs> from time to time, you'll meet one that has got it right, but most of the time, it's just the way it is. Anyway, back to this, greater than Solomon, as I mentioned, Luke 11, Jesus speaking. He says, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. In other words, he's saying, put how you treat truth versus how others have treated truth and you're going to be condemned. What is your problem? They got it right. How come you did not? Then he continues, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus, of course, he just uh, overtakes the verse, the promise of verse 12. He's saying, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And that did happen with Solomon, but it isn't the greater fulfillment is in the Christ. The New Testament's all over this. So is Isaiah 9, 7. Upon the throne of David. He shall sit upon the throne of David. And Isaiah came long after Solomon. A couple of hundred years after Solomon. So of all the great men on the earth, God chose to associate his perpetual throne into the millennial reign of his, the throne of his son with this man, David. And we'll come to some more from the New Testament in a minute. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Solomon did that physically, Jesus spiritually. And I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. That ain't true of Solomon. Solomon is not the one reigning in the millennial reign. David's name comes up. Of course, Christ does. House here refers to the temple um, in its context in 1 Kings 6 also. It is the throne of Messiah. It's messianic perpetual rule because the Messiah is, of course, God. And it speaks about, the throne speaks of the right to rule and finalized by a descendant of David in Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul introducing his letter to the Romans, uh, the Christians in Rome. Uh, incidentally, Rome in the days of Paul was a very violent place to live. It was high crime. Uh, it was a... <laughs> You know, unless you could afford to live in a real nice neighborhood and hire bodyguards, which are usually ex-gladiators or military, uh, you just didn't want to be out in the streets in Rome. Corruption was so heavy, but even the troops, the soldiers and, you know, the police, the authorities would, would mug you. So uh, this is an old joke of bad luck is having a police on a subway car with you at 3 in the morning, and he's moonlighting as a thief. If you've ever been on a subway at 3 in the morning, you know it's good to see a policeman. There's not many other people on there, but they're, you know, it's good to see one. But when he's also a crook, you got problems. <laughs> All right, anyway, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Nobody's got that distinction. David and the Lord are associated, not Solomon, not Hezekiah. Not Josiah, King David. And uh, Solomon's throne is not going to be established forever. That would, make his, that would make David's throne subject to Solomon's throne. And that's not how it is. Verse 14. And I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. 
Now, of course, that is Solomon he is referring to. However, Christ was chastened for us. He took our sins upon us, and the blows of men were put upon him. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity, chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. Isaiah 53. So there is that initial fulfillment, then there is that climactic, profound fulfillment. And this is what we're getting here because the facts scream it out. There's no way to get away from connecting these dots to the Old New Testament events in Christ Jesus. There's just no way around it. We can see it in the Old Testament fulfilled in Solomon and then we see, hey, wait a minute, this connects to Christ. And it's, it's just uh, theologically sound. Yahweh here is promising to adopt David's offspring, <clears throat> and which is significant to those people. But Solomon, I had a friend ask me once at a conference, do you think Solomon is in hell? <laughs> and I said, no, not at all. He became, actually this person became an Anglican priest. Man, man what happened to him? Because he asked those kind of questions. But anyway... It's already a hint, right? Uh, God referred to Solomon when he was born as Jeduthun, the, the beloved. And he just he's saying right here, if he sins, I will forgive him. I won't treat him like he's going to say it in a minute. I'm not going to treat him like I treated Saul because there's more going on here in the heart of Solomon. I believe when Solomon did the sins that he did, that his flesh was dominant. But he knew it was wrong, and um, he knew it was wrong, he did it anyway, and it was sin. But the Bible makes it clear that he gains forgiveness. In Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14, and just even to the end, he said, God is the one to obey. He's, he's jaded when he writes Ecclesiastes, but he's still spiritually alive. He's jaded when it comes to overthinking life. And he goes through, it's, everything's just a waste, it's just a vanity, it's just a bunch of waste. Well, that's true with the cursed world under the sun. But yet he's still writing about this because it's meaningful to him. And he's still pointing the Jews to God in the end. Anyway, I didn't want to do a whole thing on Ecclesiastes. Uh, but uh, that is a t Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the Proverbs are testimony to Solomon being forgiven. And uh, there's more. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, For to you, which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So my point is, the writer of Hebrews is saying that this verse applies to Jesus Christ. Yet here, where he's drawing it from, 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him. It is a dual application. One to Solomon and one to the Christ. Both of them uh, adopted by Yahweh. Paul also applies this passage in 2 Corinthians collectively to the church. That God does this with us too. Just like he did with Solomon, he does with us. And so when we, uh, Psalm ch chapter 2 is the, the very same thing. So what am I saying? Solomon did sin. Yeah, he sure did. Big and bad. And God forgave him and he'll be in heaven. God made provision for this. Um, otherwise, you can't have this verse. You can't have God. So let's take verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him. 
as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. My mercy shall not depart from him. Uh, That is an explicit response to all that Solomon is going to do. I think when we get to heaven, if we are allowed to look back, we will say this life was worse than what we thought. And God's mercy and grace were greater than what we thought. Verse, uh, well, let's see here in verse 15. uh, All right, we'll keep moving. I think I've made the points that I best I'm going to do. Which actually were pretty good, Rick. Yes, that's, that's true. That's just true. Nobody's confused. Everybody's right there with you. Even the, the, the youngest of them. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That is without end. There's no part of that forever there that doesn't mean forever. No matter what horrible things you're going through. Why did the Jews not, the, the, his descendants, not pay attention to this? Well, why did they not pay attention when Christ came and was doing miracles? They could just walk down to the temple and say, this guy is a descendant of David. And he's doing these messianic things. This is a deal maker. Why didn't they do that? They didn't want it. Critical to the New Testament, New Testament understanding of Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of This Davidic covenant, understanding 2 Samuel 7, is very helpful to understanding such verses as this. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I am the beginning, the source of blessings, the source of his life. I am everything. He was nothing without me. And I am the offspring of David. How does that happen? That's what the Lord said to my Lord. I mean, how does David become subservient to his son? This is how. Verse 17, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan comes and shares the vision as mentioned earlier. Now, if you say, you lost me in a lot of this. No, I lost parts of you, maybe, but you got this part. God is all over the life of David. And it works its way into the life of Christ. And it is to our glory, the glorification that awaits us, that God was very busy and still is in getting people into heaven. One of my complaints to God is, you grant the devil too much. And God's response is, (laughs) who asked you? (laughs) Uh, true story verse verse 18 then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said who am I O Yahweh O Lord Yahweh and what is my house that you have brought me this far man you got this so he, he cannot go in the tabernacle and into the tent it should be sectioned off. If anything, he's sitting outside and there's a tent before him. All of the work that Moses put into the tent on the inside, the people didn't get to see that. They just knew it was in there. They were part of that process, but they could not go in. The synagogues, of course, were the assembly places for the people. Uh, and the priests and all, they would 
teach in the courts or the precincts of, of the temple. But here, uh, David sits before the Ark of the Covenant, and we get this great lesson of gratitude with humility. It's not just thankful. It's, it's I, I really don't deserve this. And it's in a very big way. Wasted on the arrogant and sin-filled descendants of David and many others. Had the kings embraced this one chapter, the history of Israel would have been drastically different for the good. Verse 19. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord Yahweh. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this... The manner of God, uh, pardon me, of man, O Lord Yahweh. Uh, this verse 19, of course, connected to verse 18 in David pouring out his thanks to the Lord. He says, is this the manner of man, O Lord Yahweh? Is this how it is? You bless those who cannot bless themselves. Is, is this how it is? Uh, yeah. You know, we hear people who don't know what they're talking about. God blesses those who bless, you know, I don't even remember how it goes. He'll help themselves. Well, there is elements of truth in that, but that is not the absolute truth. Uh, the prayer of Jabez, he could not bless himself. And he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord blesses him in a grand way. Uh, God does not see the sins of David later on, this recurrent cleansing that we have. In the New Testament, it said the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Well, blood has to flow to keep cleansing. And so it keeps cleansing us. Uh, and we see it here. God is not going to see David's sin later and say, you know what? I take it back. You're just a knucklehead. You just can't get it together. After all I've done for you, David, this is what you do. You kill the man. You take his wife. I mean, then you go. God doesn't do that. He never takes back a word from this. Man, what a. Thrust of faith that should lend to all of us when we become sloppy and snarky and short-tempered with others and judgmental and self-righteous and all the things that we can do. Well, mostly you. Uh, we remember God is not giving up on us. He already sees it. And that encourages us to serve harder and better. At least it does me. It encourages me to love the Lord when I don't feel like singing songs of praise. I know my Redeemer lives. I don't have to be in the mood to know my faith is in operation. I don't wait for my feelings to dictate to me how I'm going to do this or that. I try to find out what is my duty and do that. And if I can feel good about my duty, that's a bonus. Let's say you're in the military and you have to guard... Uh, the the trash dump. Well, I mean, people can rummage through trash and look for things they shouldn't be. So let's just say that's your job. Or, and, and it's in the middle of summer, high humidity and hot and miserable out. Or you get to guard something inside where it's air-conditioned and nobody is. You see, one, you, you both of the cases, you're doing your duty. But in one of them, you're just actually a bit happier about it than the other. Such is life. There are circumstances you get, I mean, uh, that, you know, you don't want to do this. But you know you've got to do this. And uh, you are blessed because of it. Anyway, this spirit of grace that I'm talking about, uh, Job's friends missed it. 
All they could do is pick on Job. You did this. You must have done something. We're going to find something. They were like U.S. attorneys going after somebody with all this authority, and nobody could stop them. And poor Job is just getting bludgeoned by these guys, but he didn't put up with it. I mean, he, I love you know, your forges of you know lies and you know. <laughs> Surely wisdom will die with you. And Job, Job didn't take their mess. You got to love him for that because he was right. Psalm 8, verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? See, it goes back to, Is this the manner of man, O Lord Yahweh? Is this what happens with us when we are with you? What, what, what are we that you're mindful of us, especially since I am now less than what you created me to be? You didn't create me to be a sinner, but I am one, born in it, less than what I was Born again to be, that's what I am. When I became born again, I thought I was going to get the upper hand on me. And it's just been a wrestling match ever since. And you have to go through phases of, you know, disillusionment. Okay, it's not what I thought, but it is the truth is the truth. I can't get away from it. I'm not going anywhere. I was, you know, like Peter said, where else are we going to go? We don't like what you just preached. But where are we going to go? Because you've got it together. The whole is greater than these things we don't understand. Uh, Love never fails. Verse 20, now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord Yahweh, know your servant. For, verse 21, your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. So David is saying, I I can't even express what I feel. George Herbert in the 17th century said in one of his poems, Thou who hast given so much to me, give me one thing more, a grateful heart. Now, it's the only thing I know about this guy, pretty much. (laughs) Oh, I've looked at some of his poems, and I I just can't get into poetry. I'm still, you know, if they don't rhyme, I don't like them. Uh, (laughs) I'm not smart enough to pick out other little things from them. But it's very true. You've given me so much. Can you make me grateful? Because my flesh will suppose that I'm owed this. And the proof of that is when I lose it. When I have something and I lose it, who do I get angry? I mean, sometimes I get angry with God. Uh, That was the whole problem with Jonah. God wrote to God to give him shade and then it dies and then he turns on God. God is trying to teach the boy something. And he learned the hard way. It would have been better if he perceived it, would it not? It's like, you know what? If I mess with God, I'm going to lose. Who has hardened their heart against God and prospered? It is in the Proverbs. I've asked myself that when I've been upset with, how could, Lord, you, how could you let this happen? Okay, what are you going to do? Harden your heart? No. That's a lose-lose situation. Verse 22, therefore, you are great, O Lord Yahweh, for there is none like you. Nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. So he's really pouring this on. This is so energizing when we, when we verbalize this to God in times of any time. There's no one like you. I'm, I'm, I know where my compass points. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh himself is God, and there is no other besides him. You can't move forward in Christ without this foundation. Isaiah 45, 
He says it no less than six times. There's nobody else. And in six verses, and some of those verses double up. There's nobody like you. Verse 23, and who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name. I've got to pause there. When he's saying who is like your people, he is not saying they're super saints. He is saying as a people, they're the only ones chosen for this task that you have outlined in your scripture. Nobody's close. Uh, This is why they are as a people the chosen people, but what they do with that on an individual level will either damn their soul or save it. It comes down to who do you say Christ is. Uh, you cannot say that Caiaphas is in heaven because he's a Jew, uh, and, and nor can you, you just... just the, the, so that's what's not said. He says, continuing verse 23, and do not do for yourself uh, great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt... The nations and their gods, verse 24, for you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Yahweh, have become their God. Yes, he made them his own people, but he added to this the church. And uh, these are great facts about Israel, uh, which only increased Satan's hatred for them. Uh, this is uh, something that revisionists of history, those who would like to change history, would like to rewrite the story, and, and they cannot. Verse 25, Now, O Yahweh God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as you have said. So David is receiving the blessing which is not always easy to do. You know, sometimes we feel we don't want to owe somebody something, so we don't want to receive something. You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why we can be uncomfortable with someone giving us something. But there are times when we have to learn it's improper to say no. Anyone ever want to buy a new truck for me? First get with me on the specs. (laughs) And then watch me receive it. But don't go buying what you think I like. Does that sound bad? <laughs> All right. Verse 26. Well, people do that with art. They just buy you. Say, hey, you'll love this. You're like, man, I can't wait for you to move to another state so I can throw this thing away. Because <laughs> it's taking up space in my garage. I get nightmares looking at that. That is not Moses. Anyway. <laughs> Don't buy people artwork. Just, you know, art's you're risky. You're very risky. I bought John Connor's art one time, and he, I could tell on his face he hated it. But I was young. What did I know? So I get a pass. Anyway, uh, verse 26. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, Yahweh of hosts is God of, over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. Magnify his Lord. This, this was what was the... Church in Acts was all about. Then it faced opposition from outside and then inside. That's why we have the letters to Corinth and Galatia and uh, Colossae, 2 Peter, 1 John, the seven churches, five of them in particular. It's because the enemy was inf- had infiltrated the church. Verse 27, For you, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. 
So this second section in chapter 7 is David's uh, just outpouring of gratitude to, to God. Because God is love. And man is made for God to love. And man is made to love God back. And this is what we're looking at in this chapter. We're looking at David love God. I want to do more for his presence. We're looking at God love him back. He can't do that, but I'm going to do this. Then we hear David say, with awe, just thank you. In verse 28, now, O Lord Yahweh, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Verse 29, now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord, Yahweh, have spoken it, and your blessing, with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Uh, two things in closing. We can bless God. The same way a, an infant or a small child can bless a parent by just doing nothing but being the child, we can bless God. We'll close with... Psalm 89, verse 35, the Psalm of Ethan, about this chapter and this covenant. He says, once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. And of course we say, God doesn't lie to anybody.